everybody. Welcome back to In Search of Tarot. This is Nick. I am so excited to be with you um, for this new moon in Leo episode um, where we're going to be talking all about the strength card and um, feeling that that Leo fire energy as we close out this amazing season. I hope you guys have had um, as freeing of a, of a Leo season as I have had. I just, I, I'm Leo rising and I really just have felt the energy surging in a new way after cancer season kind of gets us in the depths. And then it felt like with Leo season, some action was kind of finally starting to roll out. So it, it's felt really nice for me and I hope it has for you too. Um, but, uh, I have an incredible interview for you this episode, um, with Sarah Hanks of Cottonwood Tarot. Um, she's an amazing, amazing person. Um, if you haven't heard from her, look her up on Instagram and, and she's going to tell us how to find her out there in the world. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about the interview, um, after we go through the card, but I'm super excited to share that with you. Um, I also wanted to just let you guys know that as always, my books are open for full readings, um, that my website is manofthecards.com and uh, you can click on, uh, readings and I've got anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half long sessions available. So I'd love to work with you anytime you're, uh, looking for a reading. Um, and I, finally, I wanted to um, just encourage you as you have time, uh, if you enjoy this podcast um, and, and listen to it and look forward to it, please uh, take a moment to give us a uh, five-star rating um, over on Apple iTunes um, and also just a very short review. Um, that combination of things is what's really going to make sure that new people are constantly discovering the podcast. That's honestly the best thing you could possibly do um, is just a, a rating and a quick comment comment, um, a review. Um, and, uh, please do share the podcast with anyone you think might be interested in it. In it. Um, also anytime you have, um, ideas or questions or concerns, you can always write to me at man of the cards at gmail.com. Um, I love to hear from you guys, any ideas you have for episodes, things you'd like for us to talk about, um, things that you're really vibing with or things that aren't really working for you so well, please know that I'm always interested in getting feedback. So, um, that email address is always available to you. Um, all right, well, let's dive into the strength card. Um, there's a lot to talk about here. So first of all, you know, the traditional Rider Waite Smith image is usually showing a lion uh, with a woman, uh, a female sort of facing figure um, with her hand in the lion's mouth or sort of taming, petting the lion. Um, so the idea is very much um, that there's something being tamed and the strength that it takes to tame perhaps our wilder self um, uh, and, uh, and the way that we kind of... Um, one thing that I think is interesting about this card that Lindsay Mack um, from Wild Soul, Terror for the Wild Soul talks about is that this is the first in the second line of the Major Arcana. So if you split the Major Arcana into uh, three lines of seven, the it sort of is life, death, life cycles, um, Lindsay talks about. And so that would mean that this card would relate back to um, the magician being card number one and the magician, if the magician is sort of an egoic sense of creation or manifestation, then what does it mean to kind of go internal with that sense of manifestation, an internal sense of creation and internal strength, um, is what Lindsay talks about. And I think that's, um, very valid and very important aspect of this card. 
Also, I was reading back through Bakara Wittner's WTF is Tarot, um, in which she talks about the chariot, um, card number seven, or yes, sorry, card number seven being very much related to the outer embodiment of energy, whereas strength is related to an inner embodiment of energy. Um, and in a lot of ways, I do think that you really can't talk about the strength card without talking about the chariot. Um, you know, if the chariot is, we've talked about the chariot on the podcast before, the chariot being sort of this um, egoic identity shell sense of self or like a, a version of yourself that you feel that you're really comfortable with and that you've really lived into and that people really know you as. And then the question becomes, how will you keep evolving past that to keep growing, keep keep changing? And it really takes obviously strength, an internal sense of, of knowing and an internal sense of being willing to um, let your ego dissolve or let your ego kind of take a hit in order to keep growing and, and evolving and, and the way that it takes strength to do that. Um, Bakara also says, um, at what points in our lives do we need to tame ourselves exerting self-restraint? Um, so, you know, in what ways might we kind of want to act out or want to speak up or want to um, have our own way? Um, and then we have to sort of tame ourselves through self-restraint. She kind of relates it back to um, perhaps the devil and, and the way that the devil kind of tells us we can do whatever we want. Um, and strength is saying, no, like actually, you know, you have to think of others. I think that that really relates back to Leo season. If you think of Leo being the highest vibration of leadership possible, um, you know, that, that kind of a leader is really thinking, what ways do I have to put myself second in order to make sure that the collective is first? You know, how do I make sure that the good of what everyone needs is what is getting the most attention? Um, and that that is sort of where Leos get a little bit of a bad rap being self-absorbed because that would be a lower vibration of a leader would be only thinking of the self, only thinking of their own needs, only thinking of, of their own, um, of people's views of them and what they think of them rather than them constantly thinking about the other people. Um, and if you think about that image of the lion and the woman, you know, the lion, the lion knows that it needs to eat and the lion might even love to eat the woman, but the lion knows that that really the woman is going to give the lion more than just food. The lion, the woman can, you know, take care of the lion, soothe the lion, bring the lion, all the food it needs, bring the lion water. Um, so it's really in the best interest of the lion and of the person, you know, that, that the lion not um, consume the woman. So it's taking the lion a lot of strength as well as it's taking the woman a lot of strength to, come to this lion knowing that there's something in the lion's wildness um, and and wild energy that that she can draw from and that she knows that she needs to come un, uh, um, unarmed, you know, willing to just bear herself to this lion. I think of the the woman in Portland. I think I talk about this in the interview with Sarah, um, that, that amazing image of the woman in Portland that laid herself bare in front of the officers, you know, just such strength and vulnerability, um, which I think is really related very much to this card, the vulnerable, the strength and vulnerability um, that really are completely interconnected. And you just, you can't have one with the other. You can't have true strength without true vulnerability. Um, because if you think about a leader, you know, and the way a leader sets the tone for an organization and the way a leader sets a tone for culture, um, you know, if you're wanting a healthy culture where, where people can have emotions, people can have feelings, it can, things can matter beyond just the business, you know, everyone is looking to the leader to show that the leader can talk 
you know, as much as it wants saying, saying it wants these things, but until it displays these things um, and actually acts in these ways and actually cries in front of people and hugs people and cares about people, that culture is not going to shift and not going to actually show up. It, it takes action, speak louder than words, you know. Um, the last thing that Bakara talks about in her book is the, an idea of sacred sexuality being connected to strength, which I think is really powerful and really fascinating. Um, she connects the softness of the heart chakra, which is related to Leo with the fire of the sacral chakra and says that through that combination is where we arrive at strength. So aligned sexuality, meaning embodiment, pleasure, and true intimacy. And again, the strength that it takes in vulnerability to show up in sex and to um, be vulnerable with another person to arrive at true intimacy, you know, to not just kind of try to have the idea of sex or, or use what you've seen elsewhere, you know, in pornography or whatever, but to actually be real and vulnerable and exposed and, and innocent, willing to laugh, willing to be vulnerable and unknowing with another person and, and the powerful um, sacredness of that, that union and that bond. Um, so one thing that's interesting to talk about this that many of you may already know is that there are differing views on the positioning of this card in the tarot deck. Um, in some decks, justice appears as number eight and strength appears as number 11. Um, but uh, to me, I think that we really need this inner strength and this inner discipline and this inner knowing before we can tackle the outer ramifications of justice. Also, it's interesting that eight, uh, the number eight, corresponds with the infinity symbol. So it's sort of this idea that we will be called upon to find this inner strength again and again and again and again throughout the course of our lives, which is absolutely true. And it really does take an inner knowing, an inner strength, an inner bonding with one's own you know, ethics and values first before you can tackle justice on a larger scale. You know, So you really have to come in to the court, knowing what you believe, where you stand. Um, and actually, ironically, that is what allows for flexibility. Um, you know, when you're really rooted in your own beliefs and your own guidance, your own knowing, you don't feel threatened by other views. You know, you're able to really listen and take in and perhaps even consider other, other viewpoints because you know, at the end of the day, where your base is, you know, you, you know that you're not going to go too far. So there's not a threat of, considering it and pondering it um, and taking it in and letting it maybe inform you in some way because you you kind of have set, you know, I'm willing to sort of see things differently here, but at my base core, these are my values, you know, and that's obviously very important in a life's journey for a human. Um, so uh, I wanted to take a moment to read from the Apparition Tarot guidebook. Um, the image in the Apparition Tarot of the Strength card is really striking in its barrenness. Um, it's it's a white card with really not much on it at all. There are three images of female figures um, that sort of evoke maiden mother crone, um, you know, a younger looking woman and a sort of middle-aged um, sort of motherly looking figure and then an, an angel, someone that's maybe close to death or perhaps has passed. And then in the very bottom of the card in the left-hand corner is a figure, an angel, an angelic figure sort of in front of a um, stained glass window of a church looking sort of downward, sort of like it's praying. And the commonality between all three of these is there's something red in each of their images. There's a red snake around the younger woman, a red, um, some sort of red, um, like hip 
adornment on the mother, red wings on the crone, um, and then a red scarf around the angelic figure. And I sort of thought about this, um, definitely the tie of, you know, Adam and Eve, the strength that it took the woman to be willing to um, sort of strike out on her own um, and the way that she was even outcast. And so therefore the angel almost made me think of Lucifer. It made me curious if that was any piece of it, um, a willingness to sort of step away from the mainstream in a way. Um, but the when I went to the guidebook, it actually is talking about Lilith. So it says, Lilith, the first woman in the Garden of Eden, was cast out because she refused to lie under Adam. She defied God's command. When God, when God threatened to kill unborn children in her name until she returned, she refused, despite the more grim consequences. Although she could ha have saved the grief of many mothers, she could not sacrifice her integrity. She would not be the first woman subservient for many to come after. For that, she was forever demonized. In living our truths, we sometimes encounter unimaginable resistance. If you feel your hand tensely gripping the white flag, hear my voice. From your resilient spirit comes a well of strength that runs ever deeper than you can see. My heart is with you now. You can do this. I thought that was just really beautiful. Um, just a really beautiful invitation to stand deeply in your own truth um, and to have the strength, the deep, deep running strength to know that forces are with you, forces are on your side, backing you up, your ancestors, your guides, your guardians, the, the gods, you know, whatever you choose to believe. And just really feeling that rooted, that really powerful rooting in strength. Um, so let's move into our pop culture references. Um, I've been talking a lot about the Lion King, which certainly, you know, Mufasa and the story of the Lion King makes me think of the strength card and Leo, but it occurred to me that I have not even been considering Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia, any of you C.S. Lewis fans out there. And that is absolutely this card. Um, Lewis writes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that Aslan is wild and cannot be tamed or tied down. That's a quote from the book that one of the characters says about Aslan. Um, and although we know that Aslan is a well-known allusion to Jesus or to like a Christian sense of God, I like that Lewis emphasizes the wildness of, of the God figure and of his nature. And that when the witch is tying him down, the worst thing she could possibly do is, is tame him. Um, there's this real sense of um, this, the almost perverse nature of taming something, of tying it down and controlling it. Strength is equal parts, wildness and self-taming. So the lion Aslan has found a way to embody wildness for the good of all and and really inspires i think everyone through his wildness you know there's so, he's so connected to um nature and to the the universe and the the needs and the flow and the power of the universe and the wildness of that but it's like that is what roots him he is rooted in wildness which is just really i think interesting to to think about um i also think about elsa and frozen and how she's being asked again and again to control and harness her magic and tame her magic and that's a really common theme in a lot of magical stories and movies and books um this sense of like you must tame yourself the world telling you know you have to tame yourself you have to you know shut yourself kind of down or or like uh succumb to the forces of what the the good of the what what human what humanity has decided is necessary and good and the lesson being your own wildness your own uniqueness um is what 
matters and is what is vital. Um, so I think that's a big takeaway from this card is that that knowing that strength is not clamping down, but strength is accessing what is primordially yours um, and kind of only answering to your own unique set of values that you have defined. Um, and of course there are baselines of good and evil. Um, you know, not to say that just because you've decided that you should be able to kill everyone you should, but you know, that is of course not the message, but it's, it's a Buddhist concept of being flexible in the situation. So, so not being married to any law as defined by government or by, um, the collective, but having your, your own individual relationship with, um, justice and your own individual relationship with morals and ethics so that you remain flexible in any situation, um, malleable and flexible. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my quick 20 minute Ted talk on, um, on the, the strength card, um, write in, let me know what you think about the strength card. I'm, I'm very curious to hear. Also, Erica has graciously, um, created a new playlist for us on Spotify around the strength card that you can check out. Just type in Erica with a K Conaway with two A's, um, on Spotify. And she's got all those podcasts and, and I mean, all those playlists and please give those a listen. They are all fire. Um, so now without any further ado, let's go into our, our uh, interview with Sarah Hanks. Um, it was an amazing conversation. She was very vulnerable and open with me, which I am so grateful for. Um, so a little bit about Sarah. Sarah Hanks is a tarot reader and a post-Mormon witch living in Utah. She began reading tarot in 2014 and launched Cottonwood Tarot in 2017 to offer readings for others. Sarah views her role as a tarot reader as something like a translator, someone familiar with the language of the cards who can help interpret their messages as querents seek out their inner wisdom. She works often with fellow Mormons who are transitioning out of the church and looking for ways to develop their own spirituality and reclaim their sovereign voices. Um, and Sarah and I talked very much about her um, journey out of the church, the way that she came to tarot and magic, um, how she defines that, how she defines being a post-Mormon, um, the role that the church even to this day still holds in her life, and um, her own kind of views on tarot and why it's stayed so relevant and, and valid. Um, and then at the end, of course, we do our, our usual poll um, where I pull a card for her, which was a lot of fun. So I'm, a, I'm such a fan of Sarah's. It was, it was an honor to have her, and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Um, and I will see you next time. Um, all right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I, I, like I was just saying, I've been such a fan of yours for a long time and I've really been looking forward to this interview. So um, I'm going to kind of just dive right in because I have so many questions that I'm so excited to, to talk to you about. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, I guess, to start off just to know like how you personally define your own sense of spirituality. We're going to get into sort of your, your journey um, with Mormonism and everything. But, but as of right now, do you call yourself a witch, a seeker? How do you kind of define your spirituality? I do call myself a witch. Um... And I feel like my spirituality is very much, very much rooted in like wanting to be close to the earth and be really mindful of the earth's 
cycles and the earth's um, lessons. And I also find a lot of my spirituality in community, which is kind of weird because I'm such, I'm an introvert. Like I don't, I pretty much don't like talking to anybody that I don't already know. But it, among a select group of people who I feel really close to and bonded with, like my, my spiritual posture is sort of like turned towards them. And I want to like be, um, be mindful of their needs and I want to express my needs to them. And so those are, I think, kind of two big pillars of my spirituality. I also do come from a Mormon background, and that continues to influence me. Um, And I still think of myself as a Mormon in in kind of a more cultural way. But I think, in large part, my spirituality has really moved away from Mormonism, even though there's still like little tendrils of Mormon teaching that are very, (laughs) very deeply embedded and maybe even still like really um, powerful to me. And I'm curious, like, what your quote-unquote coming out process was with, like, being a witch, especially hearing that you sort of still consider yourself, you know, influenced by Mormon or or as a Mormon, like, you know, do all of your, all the people in your life know that you're, that you consider yourself a witch? And and what was that process like? Um, I don't know that they really do, that all the people in my life really know that. I, I think... For the most part, most of my friends are on a relatively similar wavelength, even if they wouldn't call themselves a witch, they're like, I get it, you know, and so that's, that's not anything um, that's a source of stress, but like I come from a very kind of traditional family and my husband's family as well is pretty traditional, both still very invested in Mormonism and And so I don't feel like I hide it, but it's also never been like a topic of conversation. Yeah, that makes sense to me, like coming from like a Southern Baptist family in the South. You know, I I mean, I don't hide any part of who I am now. And so it's just sort of like everyone's seeing it and if they want to engage with it, great. And if they want to just kind of pretend like they're not seeing it, you know, whatever, but like I am who I am, you know? Right, yeah, I, I totally feel that same way. I also think, I'm curious how you feel about this. Sometimes I I think about, you know, with ritual work um, that you do for yourself, it's so personal and so much of the power of it is is the personal feelings of it. And sometimes talking about it um, to someone else almost feels like it like, weakens it or cheapens it in some kind of way, you know? Like I I found in my own, I I sort of call myself, I think right now a mystic, like I, I, even though I, do what you would consider maybe witchcraft, you know, rituals and things. I just have never felt right about claiming that title for myself. Um, But um, I, I, you know, like when I, I have a circle that I hold every full moon with some friends and even that has taken me some time to kind of get comfortable with like really owning these ideas um, in front of other people, you know, because it's just, it's one thing when you're alone in the dark and can't candlelight or whatever on your own and you can really kind of get into the zone but sometimes it's it's different sharing it with other people and it can be really powerful with other people but like everyone has to kind of really buy in in the same way and that can just be kind of tricky do you do you ever work with others or are you kind of solitary or I do work with others occasionally and that's been kind of one of the challenges of COVID is that that becomes even less um possible than before. Obviously, there are ways to meet virtually, um, but it, you know, there's always kind of like hiccups and glitches with that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, I do have a group um, 
that and we call ourselves the coven and i think we do it a little bit tongue-in-cheek but also like it's genuinely accurate like sure. it's a group of mo other post-mormon witches most of whom live in utah but not all um and yeah definitely like we do perform ritual together but i think having like as you said you don't necessarily want to tell other people or share things with other people because if you're not coming from a similar place it's like there's too much to explain there's too much that can be misinterpreted misinter and when it's something that's sacred to you that can be very painful and like a big source of stress when things are misinterpreted but if you in my experience having that core group of people who even though all of our beliefs and experiences aren't exactly the same we get it like we speak the same language as each other that's that's really powerful to me and so yeah i'll share like pretty much anything with them but i'm also i'm not going to go into detail about rituals that i do with you know mo most people that i know because it, it is kind of sacred and it's and, and it's also kind of one of those things where it's like if you understand that then i don't have to explain it to you and if you don't understand i never could explain it to you so we'll just leave it unsaid <laughs> for the most yeah. part that's very well put. I, I totally agree. Um, so yeah, so you, as you just said, you, you describe yourself as being post-Mormon. Um, and you also on your website define Mormonism as a patriarchal spirituality. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, uh, your journey with Mormonism and, and what that means when you say post-Mormon and, and kind of your, yeah, just your journey overall? Yeah, totally. Um, I grew up Mormon um, in a family that has been Mormon for as long as the church has existed, which is like 1830. Um, every single ancestral line of mine goes back to like the early days of the church. And so it's very, it, it's just like the most normal thing in the world. I know it's, it's kind of one of those things that even now it's hard for me to understand the weirdness of Mormonism to outsiders because it's my, like everything that I grew up with. But I grew up in a really kind of traditional Mormon family. My parents were married in the temple. We went to church every Sunday. My parents had um, callings in the church, meaning just like assignments that they had. And I was very into it, especially as a teenager. Like the program that the church had for teenage girls, I was like fully invested, excited about what we did. And it, it was a huge part of my identity, I think, to kind of be that like, to do mormonism right like the fact that i was the girl who was like doing everything right was a big deal to me and then as i got older there was um this very interesting kind of span of months where first of all so it would have been in 2008 i was in college and the church got really involved in proposition 8 in california which was all about mar marriage equality which the church was not down for and that was the first time that I ever felt a disconnect where I was like, I don't think I agree with what the church is doing. Like it was the first time that the political reality of the church really like entered my, um, my line of sight. And I was like, I don't like this. I feel really uncomfortable, but also the pressure to be obedient and to stay in, to like stay in line was so huge. And so eventually like I, I kind of submitted my own will to the churches and, was like yeah i guess i i guess i don't believe gay people should be able to marry someone of the same sex i guess i believe that because i'm supposed to and that's what the prophet said and then really shortly after that i went to the temple the mormon temple and mormons have like regular meeting houses where they have most 
most of their, you know, like Sunday meetings and activities and whatever. But in the temple, once a temple is dedicated, it's only for kind of like the most stalwart, upstanding Mormons. And you go in there and you, you perform ceremonies and rituals that are required for your salvation. And you also perform them on behalf of people who have died. And going to the Mormon temple and performing what's called the endowment for the first time was just like a shock to my system. It was, it was always set up for me as like this crowning spiritual event that was going to like help me understand so much more about God. And I was going to feel the spirit so strongly. And my, my personal experience with it was polar opposite of that. It was not, it was not empowering. It was not, um, spiritually like nourishing. It was to me like very sexist, um, very disorienting. And I walked out of the temple feeling like, <laughs> like my entire world had been turned upside down. Um, feeling like the fact that I was a woman, like eternally put me like on a lower tier than men. And that that was true for all women and all men. Um, and I, I mean, fully did not see that coming. And so, even though I did live in a patriarchal religion, but like it somehow you didn't, I, I didn't see that. And, you know, I was 21 when that happened. And from age 21 to 30, it was just like this very weird, um, constant struggle to like figure out what to do with that, figure out what to do with the fact that suddenly I didn't feel the sense of belonging and home that I had always felt in the church prior to that. Um, and so How old you know, were you when you got married, I was 21 and I went to the temple because I was getting married. Got it. And that's, that's often how it works for women is like, you, you basically have to get approval from your local church leaders before you can go to the temple, hmm. um, to perform those, those ceremonies. And most of the time, if you're not getting married or if you're not going on a mission for the church, your local church leaders will kind of be like, why don't you wait? Why don't you wait until you're getting married or going on a mission? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I was, I was, I blamed myself for a long time. And then I thought, well, I'll just try to make it work anyway. I'll try to find a way to stay in the church without necessarily being somebody who goes to the temple now or somebody who fully buys in. I'll still like make my own little weirdo Mormon corner and just stay there because <laughs> I, I didn't want to leave the church at all. Um, it was kind of unthinkable to me, but then around 30, I did. Um, and it's a, I mean, obviously a much longer and more <laughs> nuanced story than that to like go into all the detail, but, um, but it, it took a, about nine years from, from the point of like the beginning of my, uh, faith crisis before I left the church. And so when you say now that you still consider yourself somewhat a Mormon, but you've left the church, like how, what does that mean to you? Um, when I say that I still see myself as Mormon, I think what I mean by that is that Mormonism is as much a cultural identity as it is a religion. And, and I also feel like the way that kind of active believing LDS people talk about Mormonism assumes that like you can only you only qualify to be Mormon if you're a certain kind of person if you um, if you pay your tithing and you wear your garments that you that you get when you go to the temple if you um, follow the prophet essentially 
Um, and I just, I reject that. I feel like I'm Mormon because that's the ground that I grew in. And, and it continues to be like a culture that I care a lot about. And so it's, it's not okay to me to just be like, okay, I'm not Mormon anymore, just because kind of a certain kind of Mormon says that I'm not. I, I want to continue to say there, there is a way to be a Mormon that doesn't follow the rules that are kind of set out by others. Um, and so, yeah, I just kind of continue to feel like it, it's still important to me. And, if, and this is a way to be a Mormon. And it's based, Mormonism is based on the Bible, correct? Is that, is that right? right? Okay. Yeah, it uses the Bible and then it also has other books of scripture, including the Book of Mormon, which is kind of like the most, that, that's the one that gets the most emphasized. But no, the Bible is still, still in the mix for sure. Okay. And so, um, like, do you still, you know, with your, with your magical practices or being a witch, like, are you, are you working with God, like with a sense of like a, a Mormon or Christian Godhead or like, how does that work? I, I, that's a good question. Um, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't feel a bond to that way of seeing God anymore. And I don't know if eventually I might kind of circle back around and be like, Hey, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to look more into Jesus. Like I want to read the gospels anew. Um, maybe that'll happen eventually, but I feel like at this point, I'm still so much trying to just like divorce myself from a certain idea of God, which is like very male, very white, very um, uh, obedience focused. I, I kind of want to put that to the side a bit and be like, okay, let's think about the goddess. Let's think about a or a higher power that is not embodied. Um, you know, lots of different ways of seeing God that aren't so rigid and, um, so, and like looking like the God that I imagined while I was growing up. I'm, I'm curious, um, the, like how, um, witchcraft and tarot started to find their way into your life as you were making this transition out of Mormonism. Yeah. Um, I first encountered tarot in 2014. So by that time I was about six years into my faith crisis and part, a, a huge part of my, um, journey was getting involved with Mormon feminism. There's like a huge, um, I don't know how big it is comparatively, but a very active and like, um, thriving group of people in the church who are more progressive and more, um, well, anyway, they, the Mormon feminist community became really like central to me. And there was this one summer when I went kind of on a camp out with a bunch of Mormon feminist friends and one of them brought a tarot deck. And I, I was familiar enough. It wasn't like completely new to me when she pulled out the cards, but I, do, I don't remember having any specific experience with tarot before that. But she just did readings for everybody. It was really low key, um, very quick. She did a Celtic cross reading for me, and I don't remember anything about it except that my final card was the devil. And she was like, don't worry, the devil's sexy. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but I liked it. And I, I had such a high opinion of her, of the woman who, who, who drew the cards for me, that a few months later, I got a gift card to Barnes & Noble, I think, from my dad. And I was just like, I'll just get a tarot deck. Like, this is fun. And I, I used a tarot deck um, 
just really casually for a few years, mostly in groups of friends. Usually it would be in, in other situations like that, like a, a, a little like weekend getaway with friends, like let's bring the tarot cards. And it was really cool. But then there was this one time, one occasion in 2017, and I was actually visiting New York, um, visiting a friend uh, from high school who lived there. And he did a reading for me using his tarot cards. And it was that reading that kind of clinched it for me that I was really ready to leave the church. Um, five cards, and I still remember those cards really clearly, unlike the, the previous reading where the devil showed up, like those five cards like spelled it out for me. And so from that reading, I really was, I, I really had these two awakenings where I was like, okay, I can leave the church now. Also, tarot is a lot more like intriguing than I even thought. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll get into tarot a little more. And that's when I really started like making a serious study of tarot. I got a couple of different decks because I felt like my first deck, I didn't connect to that much. Mm -hmm. um, I started reading more. I got on Instagram and found out the world of tarot that exists on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of my, um, my launching point into feeling like tarot was going to be an important part of my life. So once you started to kind of play around and learn tarot, what was your journey to becoming like a professional reader? Well, I, I knew uh, it mostly had to do with kind of like Instagram. The, as soon as I realized what a wealth of content and learning there was on Instagram around tarot, I was like, this has the potential to completely take over my entire like social media experience. I think I'm going to make a separate account where I just follow like my tarot people and then, you know, witches and healers and herbalists and whatever. Um, so I, that was originally the thing. I just, I was like, I, I have my personal tarot account or my personal life account with like pictures of my kids and pictures of my yard and whatever. I want to have something separate. And so that's when I made the Cottonwood Tarot account and started posting things here and there just because I was like so excited about what I was learning. And after a little while, maybe five or six months, I started having people reach out to me, people I didn't know, but were just on Instagram. They're like, hey, could you, could you pull a few cards for me? And so I, just, I started doing that. I started offering readings to, um, to friends in a more like serious way. Um, whereas before it was always just like, if it happens, it happens. But this was more like, if you need me, call me and like, we can work together and just see if there's something we can figure out. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of became the journey. I, I think probably after about a year of having the Cottonwood Tarot account on Instagram, I made my website and then started, started doing readings that way. Speaking of all your Instagram stuff, your your content is amazing, and you've been doing some lives um, recently that I found really fascinating, particularly um, one where you talked about like the kind of esoteric, magical side of Mormonism that that you think is kind of there, um, you know, without having to sort of redo your entire live, because I, I'm, I'm assuming it's still, people can go and watch it if they, if they want. Yeah. Um, but can you kind of talk a little bit about what you discovered through that research? Because I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, essentially, there's this one source book that's, pr that's pretty um, uh, <laughs> definitive. Um, it's this book called Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview by a historian named D. Michael Quinn. 
And that book really goes into how like the foundations of Mormonism grew out of this sort of like folk magic tradition that existed, um, you know, kind of in the rural environs of like colonial America. Um, in 1820, 1820 is kind of the year that like the founding story of Mormonism happened. And this young boy, Joseph Smith, has a vision of uh, God the Father and the Son. And that his Joseph Smith as a person and his family and his community really were like believers in a magic worldview, believed in um, the magical uh, properties of like ritual objects like seer stones or like um, special medallions that are carved with like astrological symbols. Um, and that tradition like carried through throughout the like earliest years of Mormonism. And I think that's something we really, as a, as a church, we really moved away from because the, the necessity became like, we need to fit in. We need to be as mainstream as possible. We need to like wear suits and ties and look real corporate. And so now the, the identity of the church in the 21st century is very far away from that um, in terms of like what we recognize, but there are still these little hallmarks of um, a magic worldview in Mormonism. We have these things, and I don't even think I talked about this in the video, in the Instagram live, but there's um, kind of an ordinance in the church called a patriarchal blessing, where a specially set apart um, older man, usually called a patriarch, will um, kind of channel a blessing for you that tells you your, like, who you were before you came to earth, like, what you were like in the presence, of, in, in what we call the pre-mortal existence, like, in the presence of um, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother and Jesus before you came here, and, like, the mission that you had when you came to earth, and then the rest of the blessing will tell you about your future, essentially, like, what you're destined to do on this earth, and most Mormon young people receive those blessings. I received mine when I was 14, and that's very magical. Yeah. But there's such an emphasis on the church. Whenever you have a lesson about patriarchal blessings, they always explicitly say, like, this is not fortune telling. This has no connection to anything magical. But it's like, it does. Yeah. Like, just <laughs> very nature. Like, you, you, have, you have to say that because it so obviously does have a connection. Um, and that's just one example. So, yeah, that was something that I found really fascinating and felt like, a kind of an interesting topic to survey that being becoming a witch or or getting in touch with sort of like mystical practice is not truly at odds with Mormonism, even though it can kind of seem like it. Like there is this tradition, there's this lineage of uh, of witches and magical practitioners and magical belief in the church that in a way you're an inheritor of. That's interesting. Um, well, I'm going to segue a little bit into tarot now. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is the strength card, because that mm -hmm. is um, the card that we're sort of basing this episode on. And I'm, first of all, did you know that today is something called like Lionsgate? Lionsgate, yes. I literally just Googled that as I was waiting for you to come into the Zoom. I was like, what, is, what do you know much about it? Um, only a little bit. My understanding is that the Lion's Gate happens every year on August 8th, and it's called the Lion's Gate because it's during Leo season, mm -hmm. but it has something to do with the alignment of the earth with the star Sirius. Yeah. That's, uh, and, and the, the idea is that it's just a time of like 
intensified connection with like the the beyond and the divine and, and possibility yeah because yeah. i was reading like it's august so eight eight you know august eight yeah. and, and that eight is infinity and, and infinite potential and so it's sort of doubling that i think also the pyramids are somehow yeah it lines up with the pyramids of giza yeah um, so that's super appropriate that we're having this conversation about the strength because usually in right away like the strength is the lion with the, the woman sort of with her hand in its mouth. Um, when you see this card, you know, when it comes up in readings or whatever, what, what do you think of with the strength card? I think of this sense of tenderness and especially tenderness towards the parts of yourself that you, that you might be inclined to like disown or ignore or try to like keep trapped. Um, that relationship of the woman and the lion that you see on so many versions of the strength card, to me, it feels like you, you can interpret it as though they are part of one being. And they're really, they're both relating to each other in such a kind way. And that's sort of the model that the strength card gives you to say like, your strength doesn't have to be about ferociousness or battle or like domination your strength can just be like turning towards the parts of yourself that you're a little a little um uncomfortable with and turning towards those parts of you with love and turning towards those parts of you with acceptance and curiosity so i i definitely think like in the sequence of the tarot where strength comes immediately after the chariot i think it's it's very much about beginning that work of like self-knowing, self-acceptance. Yeah, I was thinking too, when I was looking at the card, like before you came on um, about the eight, the fact that it is the eighth card and that infinity and sort of that maybe this, this opportunity to find inner strength um, kind of might happen again and again and again. You know, it made me think of Brene Brown. Um, she talks about, that in every moment we are both courageous and afraid at the same time, like yeah. every moment of every day. And so it's kind of like strength, that that, offer, that offering to like get to know yourself as you're saying, or, or to kind of have um, inner strength comes again and again and again. Um, and I also always think about not only the strength that it takes for the figure to, you know, put its hand into the lion's mouth, but also the strength that it takes the lion to not bite the hand that feeds yeah. it you know? Um, and, uh, and there's also a really great story. I don't know if you ever listened to Tara Brock. Are you familiar with Tara Brock? Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. yeah. She, in a podcast recently was talking about, um, a man that works with, I believe, orangutans and, um, that he was talking about if he comes into their forest or into their like dwelling place armed, that even though that's keeping him safe, they can sense it. And so they won't come close to him. But yeah. if he comes unarmed, they invite him in. And of course, that's obviously very dangerous for him. But he's like, it's really the only way that I can, you know, get into the right relationship with them to be able to do the, the studies that we're trying to accomplish. Um, so it's kind of that imitation of like, vulnerability, you know, to really unarm yourself. Um, to life, you know, or to whatever circumstance you're sort of peering into with the tarot and kind of take, take your arms off and, and just be vulnerable in the way that that changes your interactions that you have with people. Um, um, I'm curious why you think tarot has lasted as long as it has. I mean, it's, it's been around for so long um, and evolved in a lot of different ways. 
um, and what you think that it offers people today, both um, practitioners and also people who come as querents? Yeah, I think a lot of it goes back to what you were saying earlier related to seeing the ritual that takes place in uh, a church setting and seeing how really the, the, the things that those priests or those uh, religious leaders of any kind are doing, they, they are magical in nature, but the, the claiming of power as though like, I'm the one who's authorized to do this and I'm doing it for you and you have to come to me. Um, that's, that's a huge wound that I think a lot of people have just this belief that like other people are authorized to do things you know, in terms of like spirituality that we are not. And I think the nature of tarot, it brings that power so much more back into like the personal realm. Uh, And I think that that's something most tarot readers that I know in this kind of generation of tarot readers, even when they're reading for other people, that is such an emphasis. It's like, hey, I'm here and I'm I'm doing this and I, I, you know, I have a lot of understanding of the cards and everything and I'm happy to share that with you, but like the power is yours. This is something like there's a constant returning of, of the authority to the person whose cards are being read. Um, I was curious about any ways in which right now your own kind of practice or relationship with tarot is evolving like is there any anything that comes to mind um specifically that you're kind of contemplating or thinking about in your own work yeah i i've been feeling and a lot of this has happened in the midst of covid and the uprising around black lives matter i i feel like my kind of general approach to spirituality in general you know before tarot back in you know my most orthodox days of mormonism my approach to spirituality was often very, um, I saw God as just like inherently very, very loving, very gentle, kind of interesting bringing it up right after that, the talk of the gentleness of the strength card. But like, I never felt this sense of um, disapproval or needing to change anything about myself when it came to my spiritual life. It, like if I would pray, I just felt like God was saying like, good job. Like you're doing everything great. I love you. You know, which is a really, there's a lot of beauty in that and I wouldn't trade it. But now I'm starting to feel like a little bit of a different tone sometimes with when I work with tarot, especially for myself, Mm -hmm. that there is a little bit more of an expectation. Um, I used to to talk a lot in terms of like um, a gentle message that comes from the tarot. And now I'm thinking that even though that's still there, there's also sometimes like a really clear charge from the tarot. And it's not just about the cards sort of reinforcing or validating, but actually saying, I need you to step into something. Like I need you to step up. I need you to um, evolve, you know? And so I think, I think that's where I notice my practice changing the most is starting to tap into those um, messages that maybe could be interpreted as more harsh or um, disapproving but are actually still very much coming from a place of a, a divine source that's loving, but, but wanting to see you grow, wanting to see you like step into the next plane of like your existence. So you don't just stay, you know, safe and comfortable wherever you are. Um, okay. Well, we're going to do the fun part now where I'm going to pull a card for you, but obviously I 
I'm gonna be curious to hear, you know, your own thoughts about the card as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so I will, um, I'll do a little shuffling and this, this part I'll like kind of edit down a little bit, but if you just want to um, send me your energy um, while, while I shuffle. I think this card is coming up for a lot of people right now. It is death. <laughs> I almost said swore, but I don't know if you have an experience. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, first of all, I love this interpretation. I'm using the apparition tarot. Um, I like the, the transformative quality, you know, of this, this card and that it's stepping either, either kind of going down into the darkness or kind of stepping out of the hole of whatever, you know, but I, I like that idea and I like the butterfly image. Um, so honestly, when I pull the death card for myself, I actually think it's uh, a, a welcome sight because what I always think of with the death card is that by the time you get to the death card, the thing that you're being invited to let go of is really already gone, you know, has really already passed. Um, and that really all that's left for you to do is just open your hands and kind of let go. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that it's like easy or um, lacking, you know, emotion to it. And usually I think the death card also can offer a, an opportunity for you to kind of ritualize the passing of whatever this thing is or, or kind of honor it in some way. Um, you know, so that you really do um, give it its full value, you know, and, and it's not to say that this is easy, an easy passing, you know, like I said, but I do think that by the time you get here, the, the hard work and the uncomfortableness of maybe trying to cling to it or make it work or figure it out has really already gone by. And now all that's really left is just to let go. Um, how do you think, like, what do you think when you see this card in your life right now? I think you're right about the the way that death is sort of just almost like making it official, but like so much of the work has already happened. And I actually just pulled the hanged man for myself this morning, which is mm -hmm. really the card where you do a lot of that, like the, you know, nose to the grindstone, figuring out how to let go. Yeah. But I also, um, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I also really think of death in the sequence of the major arcana as like the descent into very mysterious realms like mm -hmm. everything you're encountering between death and judgment is um is very hard to put words to i think and and that's kind of i've been thinking a lot lately about the way that the way that I anticipate like fall and winter being for myself and for my community and for our country, you know, a pandemic in the winter time and the election and everything. And I'm definitely feeling this sense of like descending into very mysterious, chaotic realms and needing to sort of like mentally, emotionally prepare for that. Mm -hmm. um, in a sense, it is like letting go of a lot of the expectations that I think many of us had for what, for, for how much better things would be by this point in time. Yeah. I also think like when, when you pass through death, that's kind of the only way to pass through the gateway to life as well, you know? And so whatever is going on in our world right now, um, 
it really is going to be completely different. I mean, there, there's a major, major opening for just total transformation, I think, um, where really all the, all the old rules no longer apply in a lot of ways, you know, and to get to that, that life, that new life, you know, we have to have death, you know, and, and the moment that death happens, life begins. And, you know, so I, I think there's still there's still a lot of clinging I think for us understandably of like like trying to hold on to what we know or some semblance of normalcy and it's kind of now we're kind of doing something where we're just trying to kind of have the old ways but with a mask on you know or I, I think of theater you know I work in theater and I'm seeing like theaters kind of try to do things virtually that really aren't new things they're just kind of old things repurposed for virtual and I think this is the death card is an opportunity to like totally do something totally new, you know, totally yeah. different. Um, and we're maybe just not quite there, but it's like coming, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's it's a powerful card for this moment, like for sure. And, and like I said, I've been pulling it kind of nonstop for, for a lot of people, so. Wow. So you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad to be part of the club. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, before we sign off, I just want to let um, you tell everybody how to find you, what's going on, any offerings you'd like to share or anything you want to share with everybody. Sure. So um, you can find me online at cottonwoodtarot.com. And there I have various readings. I also have the first tarot, the first of what I hope will be seven tarot ebooks, guidebooks. Um, this one's about the suit of swords. Um, and if you're on Instagram, I'm there, also cottonwood.tarot. And as, as, for, as of right now, I feel like there's a lot of stuff cooking, um, mostly related to like serving the community of post-Mormon women that I'm most plugged into um, in terms of like ritual and spiritual reclamation and things like that. And I'm working with some other practitioners who I love and adore so much. And so hopefully in the next, in the coming weeks and months, there'll be more information about that. But I'd love, I'd love to connect with anybody. That would be great. Awesome. Well, I really, I thank you for being so generous with your time and with your spirit um, and being so vulnerable and sharing everything you've shared. Um, it's just been really lovely to talk to you and um, thank you. I wish you the best. Mm -hmm.